0: You're listening to Podnosis, the pulse of the healthcare industry. I'm Teresa Carey.
1: It's a very just simple principle of treating every one of our members as as if there were a family member and having that intense passion to take care of that senior. I really think it it just boils down to that.
0: That was John Kao, the CEO of Alignment Health. He talked with Fierce's Frank Diamond about how to make a healthcare InsurTech profitable. Stay with us. We'll hear more from them later. But first up, let's talk about diagnosis of neurodevelopmental disabilities. The average wait time to get a child in to see a doctor for an autism diagnosis is 18 months. Because of a shortage of specialists and outsized demand, well, kids are typically getting diagnosed later than recommended at six years old. By then, it's more difficult to effectively intervene and manage symptoms. One company, Cognoa, set out to democratize access to autism diagnosis. Its AI-driven software is the first FDA-authorized autism diagnostic tool. Dennis Wall is the founder of Cognoa, and he sat down with Anastasia Gladkovskia to talk about the importance of diagnosis of neurodevelopmental disabilities in children and how technology can help get there. Here they are.
2: Autism is unique because unlike other genetic conditions, there's no blood test or brain scan that, that can diagnose it, right? And it kind of requires medical judgment and expertise and analyzing somebody's behavior to make a diagnosis. So I'm wondering, broadly speaking, how can technology help in this space? Or maybe to put it another way, when did you realize that technology can help?
3: And as you said, it's a genetic condition. Why do we say that? It's genetic because 90% 90 of, of identical twins share the phenotype. So when one twin has it, the other twin has it. Ninety percent of the time, that indicates that it's genetic. It's also heritable. It's at least sixty percent heritable, perhaps more. Therefore, there's something going on, and there's some transmission happening of of genetic risk from parents. And there's also spontaneous mutations that are emerging um, within the child, within within the within the child, uh, his or herself. And yet, we've struggled really to find those those markers, those indicators that drive the autism phenotype. And so I did start my career that way and working on transcriptomic data, genetic data, DNA data, of course, variously defined, including uh, structural array based data and then moving into whole genomic data. And we we could not and still have yet to really figure it out. It's an interesting and it's an important endeavor, but still remains one that's very much academic. And hasn't much, much, much of the work has not translated into clinically actionable outcomes. Um, I'm getting to the answer. I'm sorry, it's a bit long-winded, but um, <laughs> but but really important for me was to decide. To, you know, as 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 a as a person who's using computational thinking, like artificial intelligence and machine learning, signal detection, statistical learning, whatever you want to call it, to find signal maybe based on class here where class is defined as kid with autism kid without autism which is kind of how we started we needed to figure out how do we call that kid as having autism like what is it that we use to like define the individual as being autistic and so i trained fastidiously on the procedures. Of how we do this, and as you indicated, it's behavioral measurements, it's it's symptoms, and 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 measurements that can be observed, and, and typically they're observed. And as I was trained, clearly became clear about the fact that those observations are made by trained specialists who are uh, very good at what they do, but they are far outnumbered by the numbers of kids who need to be seen. Importantly, at that point in time, however, I learned. Not only is it cumbersome and long, but it's typically very subjective. Mm -hmm. Even though it's rigorous, there are instances in which the the clinical person working up the child and then scoring ex post facto after having done the observation would literally change the scores because they didn't meet their expectations. So they would erase, oh, I don't like that number. I'm going to put a different number and Mm. ensure the child does or does not receive an autism diagnosis. And they were doing this as they trained me, you know, right in front of me. Mm -hmm. But it made me concerned, of course, that this whole procedure has the potential to create noise. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of noise, you're not gonna be able to identify the phenotype, you're not gonna be able to use the phenotype class definitions like I just described uh, to um, inform how you run genetic association studies because that phenotype is misleading. Mm -hmm. so the two things ultimately really long-winded answer to say two things are wrong here one is it's really long and it's done by people who are far outnumbered by the people who need to be seen and the other is that at the end of the day the outcome is not very good Hmm. and so it it cried out for a solution we had to figure out a new way forward Mm
2: -hmm. that's so interesting when you talk about using technology to kind of standardize the process of diagnosis, because I'm thinking about how AI is being used in, in surgeries and in operating rooms today. And it's very similar, right? It's like, how do we minimize impact and um, improve outcomes across the board by standardizing certain things that, are, that have typically historically been done manually?
3: Exactly. And so here, this, is, this particular space was ripe for digital phenotyping variously defined, but in particular for the combination of artificial intelligence and, tech- and technology to uh, increase the objectivity of and the value of the outcome of classifying a child as having an autism diagnosis from mild to medium to severe. And we can go on because uh, uh, technology plus AI doesn't just give you autism or not, it can give you a number. And that number fits a distribution And that distribution and where the child is in it is extremely powerful Hmm. and and usable, not just for that one moment in time where the child desperately needs a diagnosis to unlock services, but as a longitudinal tracking system to Mm -hmm. understand progression Mm -hmm. as the child's dynamic phenotype changes.
2: Right. So you mentioned that there's a shortage of trained specialists that can accurately and quickly diagnose a lot of children. And Cognoa has developed this app, of course. This sort of unlocks greater access to diagnostics because, like you said, any provider, say a primary care provider, um, can can use this tool to make a decision and to help get the child into care quicker, which, as we know, is really critical during a certain neurodevelopmental uh, stage for the child that's really important for families that are in uh, medical deserts in rural areas. Um, and that kind of brings me to my next point is, um, you know, racial and ethnic disparities are very prevalent when it comes to access to autism care, diagnostic and treatment services. Um, you know, black, Hispanic, indigenous children are all, um, have, have much less access than white children. And I'm wondering you know, what is the potential of technology to help reduce that care gap? But at the same time, what is the limitation? I'm thinking about folks that might not have a device, uh, you know, a smart device or something to use the app, because parents can use this app as well, right? Uh, they can take a video and, and upload That's it in right. the app, which right. give them the results they can then bring to a provider. So what do you make of that?
3: We've done a lot of work on racial and ethnic disparities and geographic access to autism resources across the U.S. and and publishing on that to not only to um, elevate the um, kind of awareness of just how serious these things are, but to map specifically where and how egregious those, those disparities are across the U.S. by literally creating a mapping, like an actual visual Representation of the geographic disc- disconnects between people and places they need to go or would need to go to get access to not only diagnostics but therapeutic intervention, and it's unfortunate. You know, as you as you indicated, it's particularly egregious in specific areas that are um, <clears throat> enriched for populations, including uh, Black or African American and Hisp- Hispanic or Latino individuals. They are disproportionately under-resourced and have significantly fewer resources available to them than white counterpart, uh, autistic children. And, and that to us is really, really motivational and inspiring to think really hard about how technology can, inter- how technology can be utilized, um, mobile technology in particular to fill those gaps. It's pressing. It's important. It's incredibly important. And for Cognoa it's, it's mission critical. And we do believe that we can use Canvas as a, as a safeguard, as an opportunity, obviously, to um, fill those gaps. But there still will need to be more work done. And coming to your, your point about in, you know, in areas where or with individuals who do not have access to an Android or an iOS phone, whether an older or a new model, and we work hard to make sure our systems are available and usable on some of the older generation Android phones, we, we, sh- we, send, we send them to those places. We send them out to wherever they need to go. Is that gonna solve the problem at scale? Not so much, of course, perhaps, but it's a good start. Identification is one part of the problem though. It's really just the beginning. And Canvas is incredibly good at it. It's good at identifying the children who need care, but the care is the key next ingredient. And the other thing that we can do as Cognoa is is tie the two people together. We're a technology company. We can identify the kids and we can identify the nearest provider to them. And if that provider is too far away, we can help that provider get closer by bringing up more RBTs, VCBAs. So that's a key commitment that we're starting to make as well is trying to fill some of those gaps.
2: Okay. And let me stop you right there and ask you to define RBTs and BCBAs. Oh,
3: yeah. Registered Behavioral Technicians and BCBAs are going to be the Behavioral uh, Therapists. They're both Mm. variously certified behavioral therapists who are delivering various forms of uh, therapeutic intervention, all all kind of fitting under the umbrella, umbrella of what is referred to as Applied Behavioral Analysis.
2: Okay. So to recap um, and to make sure I understood when you were talking about people who might not have a device, you send devices to them and then you also bring therapists into areas that don't have enough. Is that right?
3: That's correct. That is something we're committing to. We've been doing now and hopefully we'll be doing in higher capacity and at scale in the future. Mm -hmm.
2: Okay. Got it. And in terms of ethical considerations of using something like AI um, on kids, you know, can you talk about what you have thought about as you've built out this app and Cognoa in general? and you know privacy concerns, ways to communicate that to parents, uh, ways to make sure that providers know how to use the technology?
3: Right, great question. <clears throat> Safeguarding privacy and engendering trust are two of the key focus areas for the company, of course. One aspect of the Canvas system is to receive a video of the child in their natural environment at play in, in, their, way, in, in their own world, in the typical ways that they behave, in the typical ways that they interact. This is often um, a scenario like, for example, playing with Legos or Matchbox cars or uh, a tea set. And yes, that video is a private video. That, that video is something that we treat extremely carefully. It's encrypted in flight, and when it lands in our cyber-secure universe, it is locked and impossible to access except by our video analysis system. So I'm going to stop for and I'll explain. AI, artificial intelligence, is not anywhere near where it would need to be to be able to automatically extract autism features, the kinds of complicated features we need. Uh, from these videos on its own Mm -hmm. so we still need humans participating in this process and we and we use humans to watch these videos and they measure certain aspects of the videos that are important but they do so really quickly because they're doing it within the time frame of the video and this sort of semi-supervised machine learning process creates a vector that is powerful, especially when it's combined with the other two elements of the Canvas system, which include a parent report, a very brief question set that's easily answered on their app and a healthcare provider report. Um, So that's just quick background. I should have said that in the beginning, but the private piece, the really core component that's private and secure is this video, but it's super, super powerful. It is the ingredient that is Obviously, a picture is worth a thousand words. A video is worth a million, something like that. Mm. And with that video, we have the ability to really be precise and have extremely high, not negative and positive value. Mm-hmm. So we want parents to know that, and we want them to know that. Not certainly it's secure, but that with it, we can give them the answer that they need. You know, they they you know. Like I could always say it's a scary thing, right? Autism. Mm-hmm is a daunting diagnosis and has implications but if you know you know early enough there are so many good things that you can do that will create a lifetime of positive outcomes for you Mm -hmm. and your child and so you may not want to know but you have to know and as soon as you know you're able to do all the things that are going to give your child skills to thrive. And that's going to give your life the enrichment it deserves.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so to be clear, do, would it be the parent that owns the video and that data or who, who would own that data?
3: They own it and always can retract it from us. If they wish we keep it, of course, because we have to study it Mm -hmm. and it becomes on both sides a persistent observational re- like medical record you know it's 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 super cool because y- you could put it in an album of course on your iPhone this video and we do that uh, we as parents do that i've got a lot of videos of my children as they have grown in their al- in, in my albums there's one for each of them <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a memory bank. It's a time capsule, uh, for me and heartbreaking. Sometimes when I go back and watch these videos, but, um, but, um, but for medicine or for the, the, this developmental health analysis that must be done, we can go back and look at those videos and change something if we know something more now, if we learn something new in the future, like how to get smarter at you know, like using our artificial intelligence models, we can go back and reanalyze and learn something new. Um, but also it's a pers- that persistent record gives us the power to realize the change. So yes, the parents own it and we like to own it too, for the sake of the power of the pr- preserved medical record,
2: mm-hmm. yeah. Will these videos also be informing the evolution of your AI and the algorithm that Canvas uses?
3: Uh, the FDA authorization came with what's referred to as a predetermined change control plan. This is a relatively new set of guidelines that the FDA has been working on. They're very, they're very forward-thinking. These. The forward-thinking part about it is that they, uh, the FDA is, has, has begun to completely appreciate and understand the importance of artificial intelligence and decision support in medicine. And, uh, and the perhaps cumbersome reality of trying to do updates to your model through a, a more traditional 510k submission type of process. And so the change plan that they've enacted, the guidance uh, for the change plan is to include in your authorization request a set of protocols and procedures that they review and approve to change your device appropriately as you learn and get smarter over time. So that's what AI is meant to do in the first place. So it's been on the market for for a bit here. And, And while it's been on the market, we've been able to receive a bunch of new data and check to see if we can make our algorithm better. And we realized we could, and so we did.
2: Awesome. Well, um, I think we can wrap up. Dennis, thank you so much for being here.
0: Oh yeah, sure. Hey, before we go on to our next segment, I wanna ask you a question. Are you gonna be at the World Heart Association Summit this weekend? Well, I am. I'm headed to Switzerland to speak at the summit. I'll be talking about how to translate scientific and medical knowledge to a way that's easily understood by the public, like vaccines, genetics, artificial intelligence, statistics, all that gobbledygook. So if you're going to be there, find me. I would love to chat and geek out about science. And next we are going to hear from John K.O., but first a word from our sponsor. City National Bank offers the best of both worlds. Their clients benefit from personalized attention and flexible solutions without sacrificing access to the global scale, support, and resources needed to grow in the healthcare industry. If you're in the business of facilitating patient care or finding cures, they're committed to working with and for you every step of the way. City National, your success is their business. Visit cnb.com slash healthcare to learn more today. So healthcare insurtechs, can they turn a profit? Well, that's what Fierce's Frank Diamond wants to know. He reached out to John Kayo, the CEO and founder of Alignment Health. Frank says that Alignment Health's model involves offering the sort of benefits that traditional Medicare Advantage plans just don't offer – and that it could have the secret ingredient that will make it profitable? Well, let's find out, here they are.
4: John Kayo, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Frank, thanks for having me on.
0: Now,
4: Ari Gottlieb, he's a nationally known healthcare strategist who focuses on the insurer tech industry and whose uh, LinkedIn posts are closely followed. Well, uh, Gottlieb can be a very tough critic of insurer techs, but he gave your company, Alignment Health, some praise. Especially about your business model. So, what's the secret in the sauce? You told you told us that it's totally focusing on the Medicare Advantage beneficiary. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a very s- just simple principle of treating every one of our members as as if there were a family member, um, and and having that uh, kind of just. Intense passion to take care of that senior. I really think it it just boils down to that: Um, the 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 healthcare service quality and access, but also just solving people's problems and being their advocate. But at the essence of it is is that, in my strong opinion.
4: Um, Trends and acquisitions. In recent years, we've seen Tufts Health Plan. Partnered with Harvard Pilgrim Health Plan. There's also Highmark and Health Now. Molina Healthcare acquired Affinity Health Plan. That's just to name a few. Do you see any problems with this trend of mergers, acquisitions, and partnerships creating giant health insurance companies?
1: Yeah, no. I I think uh, I think the DOJ is really looking hard at at all of that right now. I think they do not want um you know monopolies out there i think people are looking very very hard not only in terms of um you know kind of the number of uh members that are part of their organization or their plan or their hospital or their medical group but but they're looking at vertical integration also and and what are the implications on antitrust issues related to going vertical
4: Vertical integration, uh, you mean health plan merging with health plan?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's health plans, you know, vertically integrating their delivery systems uh, with with doctors, um, primary care, subspecialty care. It's also, uh, you know, hospitals getting into having their own health plans. It's just all kinds of vertical. And I still think that, you know, one of the gold standards in our, in, uh, our country is, you know, it's I a little bit of a shout out to Kaiser. I, I think you know, people like that vertical integration between Kaiser and Permanente and their doctors and their hospitals. It just kind of works on a regional, regional basis. They kind of know what they're getting. Uh, the qualities are in the, act. well, quality is good. I'm so sure about access right now. But if done right, it can be a good thing.
4: How can an insurer tech compete with these health insurer plans that because of vertical integration are getting larger and larger.
1: You know, I, I always, I always kind of take a step back when we get kind of clumped into the insure tech category, um, principally because a lot of our uh, ethos is clinical in nature. It's, it's care delivery centric in nature. And we just happen to know uh, kind of how to be a good Medicare Advantage plan. Uh, We happen to use a lot of uh, predictive analytics. We use a lot of data. But again, the core of what we do is care delivery. And so part of the model is is using the data that we have to identify who that 10% of our membership are really in high need of care, proactive care. Right? And once we know who the people are, we want to send clinical teams for free to their homes and just take care of them. And, and what that does is a couple things in response to your question, which is it, it it's an extension of the community primary care physician. And we say to the primary care, they're your patient, and and do you follow your your patients into the hospital if they have to go to the hospital? And they typically say, no, we, you know, we have a hospitalist taking care of them in the hospital. And they will, well, I go, think of us as hospitalists at home. Right, we're taking care of your patient at the home for free because they need it. That is only a portion of it of the membership we just call it 10 percent you know of the total membership and what that does is it allows us to scale and so we're creating kind of this virtually vertically integrated and aligned model that that helps the doctor um, gives the the member a lot of uh, care gives them a lot of the insurance needs that they have gives them a lot of the home-based um you know kind of supplemental care that that they need for their social determinants of health and kind of this whole concept of whole health care whole body whole health care is is what's allowing us to be competitive
4: um when we talked last month you compared alignment health to amazon you said, and I'm paraphrasing now, with Amazon, it's the customer, the customer, the customer. With alignment, it's the senior citizen, the senior citizen, the senior citizen.
1: Right.
4: But as you know, Amazon became Amazon in part because it used its size to pick off smaller companies by providing the same products for much cheaper. Are the giant legacy healthcare plans like United Healthcare or Humana, who are very much involved in Medicare Advantage, are they in a, a better position for offering the same services as you do, but for a lower lower cost? Do you worry about that? Um, how would how would you deal with that?
1: Oh yeah, they're 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 the the giants, you know, and and they're the Goliaths, and we clearly are the Davids. I mean, so it really is a classic David versus Goliath story, you know, and and yet from the, from the beginning of this, this journey that we've been on, you know, nobody thought David could, could succeed. And here we are, you know, and, and over a hundred thousand members approaching a couple billion dollars in revenue. If you can create value to the consumer by giving them more value, more coverages, more supplemental benefits, but do so in a way that's responsible, you know, kind of from a financial perspective, um, you you have a chance of beating these big guys. You have a chance of disrupting them. And what we figured out is being that lowest cost of the supply chain. And the reason we think we're very low cost is because we know how to manage the care delivery needs of the seniors, particularly that 10% that really need a lot of care. And let me give you an example. So, so my mom who joined us, uh, she's maybe seven years ago now at 83, she's 90 now. Um, before we, we, you know, launched the company into her, her market, which is in Orange County, California. Um, you know, she had another health insurance carrier that had, you know, kind of contracted downstream with a, with a bunch of doctors. Uh, they call them, you know, independent physician associations or IPAs. And, you know, she picked a PCP. She, if she needed to go see some specialists, she got a referral, went to the subspecialists. Um, and, you know, they were generally nice people. But really, nobody really knew what was happening with her. You know, there's nobody paying enough attention to all the subtle issues going on with her health. And, and so she uh, ultimately had like this heart attack that, that caused her to have three stents put in her heart. And, and when she got discharged um, after, you know, three days in, in ICU and three days in telemetry, with good care, by the way, inside the hospital, um, all chaos broke loose. Like, like the primary care really didn't know what was happening. None of the specialists were communicated with that she typically works with. The cardiologist that you know, uh, uh, cardiologist, kind of just you didn't see that person again after the hospital, and I had to, I had to go to this organization beg for literally beg for home health please see my mom post-surgery you know once a week and had to beg for cardiac rehab please get her some 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 rehab i contrast that that's like today's kind of good world i contrast that to what alignment does now where where every week a nurse will follow up with her or see her take her vitals, make sure she's doing okay. You know, just, and there's a little bit of social dynamic. Um, and, 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 and because of that, she hasn't gone into the ED in like eight years. I mean, it's just, it's like, there's just, it's just attention to detail and peace of mind. And so when you kind of have that kind of service, what other of the big guys would you say think like that and so when you contrast that back to your original question i would say it's all about this maniacal attention to service customer service and then using the technology we have the predictive analytics um and 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 the 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 uh, the ai and and just kind of identifying who these people in need are all the time and then using tools to help them um, remotely and in person. This is all about quality. Mm -hmm. That's how we're going to beat people. It's going to be through quality. Do you rely on
4: customer satisfaction surveys and does that present a uh, logistical problem when you're dealing with a Medicare Advantage population?
1: No. Yeah. There's, there's two metrics. That that are, are are available. One is something that that um, the Centers for Medicare medicare Medicaid Services or CMS, which is the administrative arm um, of 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 the federal government that oversees the Medicare program. They uh, develop something called the Stars program, and so there are a, a number of measures, you know, like seventy different measures of quality and, and, and uh, uh, customer satisfaction essentially. And the whole idea is if you measure and all Medicare Advantage organizations are measured across these different metrics to move toward five stars. And so you, you, you're, you're incentivized to provide high quality, high outcomes, high experience levels for these beneficiaries. And if you achieve those high level quality and customer satisfaction standards, you're rewarded with higher reimbursement. And the logic there is, if you provide really good service to people, you should be rewarded for that. And so the incentives are aligned with with these organizations.
4: John, is there anything that we haven't discussed here that you want our listeners listeners to know about, they think is important?
1: I, I think um, the opportunity to improve the care delivery for seniors in the country and to give them a higher uh, you know kind of level of service, and to have every single senior in this country deserve the same quality of care that my mom has, people just should expect. It's the right thing to do. 20% of our overall population in this country is going to be over 70 million people 65 years and older uh, by the year 2030. Um, and you've got, you've got about 52% of, of the people currently that are 65 or over in some form of Medicare managed program. And so structurally, it's a good thing, but you've got to have the service delivery even better. And so we should all demand from every one of the people participating to just have a better standard, a higher standard of, of, um, of, of service and clinical outcomes to help people. It's, it's something that I think is the next uh, kind of area that can be really uh, disrupted.
4: John Keo, the CEO and founder of Alignment Health. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, as always, Frank.
0: Thank you for listening to Podnosis. I'm Teresa Carey. You can find more news and stories at FierceHealthcare.com. Next week, we're going to discuss food insecurity, and we'll dive deep into a comparison of top paid healthcare executives with payer execs. So tune in Wednesday morning to Podnosis, where healthcare is our beat.